Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-397. So how are we doing today? Are you surprised to hear from me? Well, I figured since I've been missing my publishing deadlines, I'd make it a point to get this one out reasonably on time. I actually had some plane time and uh, had a lot to get out of my head around the Bay State Marathon. Had to let that digest a little bit. So let's celebrate this abundance together. This one's going to be a bit of a gear change from last episode's rah-rah Boston qualification monologue dialogue. Today I reached out to my friend Molly, who we've known from the online running community for a long time, 10 years. We ran the Mojo St. Loco in St. Louis together years ago. And you may or may not remember the Mojo Loco movement was a thing started by Steve Runner of Fidipidation's fame where we would all get together in some city and run a relay race together. Sort of a made-up race. And there was no point other than just a bunch of runners from the online community getting together to meet in the protein form and hang out. And it was a great idea. And someone should start that project again. That's how I met Molly. That's how I met Eddie Marathon and Zen Runner and Kevin Gwynn and all those guys. It was all through Steve at Fidipidation. So Steve, you know, you did good. I always follow Molly's adventures online. You know, it's a unique age where we all live out in public through social media, and Molly is always entertaining. And ironically, I probably would have described her as comically neurotic. And as I watched, she ran up against something that changed her life, so I wanted to talk to her about that and see what, if anything, we could profit from the conversation. And to wrap up, to tie a bow around last week's show, Jonathan, who we interviewed, ended up positively obliterating his target race, the Atlantic City Marathon, with a 3.11 finish. And that's the power of focus, my friends. He went from a 3.54 to a 3.11 in just about 24 months. And I just read today on social media that he's gunning for a sub-3 finish next fall. So there you go. He definitely has caught the bug. My training partner Brian toughed out a 3.33 and change at Bay State to get his 2020 qualifier. 
And we had another longtime friend of the show finally get the sub-330 she'd been chasing for years at, I think, the Amsterdam Marathon. Great example of sticking with it and doing the work to get the goal, because I know she went through some dark times, too. My race? Well, you'll have to listen to the race report that I'm wrapping around this episode. So when you have a situation, like Molly's, it clears away all the bullshit from your life, And it makes me ask the question, why can't we get this clarity until it is forced upon us by some crisis? We all have the power to do what we want, to do what is right, and to do what makes us happy. So why don't we? It's probably because we're too busy trying to live the life that we think we are supposed to. No one gave us a manual on how to live a healthy life. The manual we got was to keep in line and do all the right things... And at some point, the reward will come. Well, it's probably time to update that manual. And I would add this. Don't wait until your name is called. Don't pretend to be happy living the life you think you're supposed to live. You only get this one life. You only get this one now. So respect yourself, accept yourself, and do what you want to do. And I don't mean to go all Tony Robbins on you, but unless you can come to grips with who you are, And what you want, the world's just going to spin by. So get busy with that, would you? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Vaporflies and Dead Squirrels. Base date 2018. Brian came through the finished shoot at about 3.33. He got his medal, staggered a few feet, bent over, and dry-heaved for a bit. He gave it everything, and he got his qualification a minute and a half under the new standard. I was in dry street clothes and had his pack for him. We had ridden in together in the morning. He didn't think his truck would fit in the parking garage. I handed him off to his wife and family so he could get out of the wet clothes before he got cold. And earlier, as I was waiting in the cold sun at the finish, I was texting with Tim, our mutual friend and training partner. Tim was stationed out by the bridge at mile 17, and I asked him how Brian was doing. And Tim said he went by on a 328 pace. So those last five miles must have been quite a fight for Brian. It was supposed to be a tailwind on that last stretch, the last 10K, And instead, it was a swirling, beat-you-up, sidewind, headwind at times that stood runners-up late in the race. And I stood by the fence, watching the finishers wobble by. I took my station, starting just about the three-hour mark of the marathon, just before it clicked over. And there was a lot of celebrating and hugging and tears, the culmination of many months of hard work come to fruition for the local elites, And this year, as most years, Bay State was the USATF New England Marathon Championships. And the way this works is that the regional USATF, USA Track and Field, selects a race of each distance over the course of the season, and the local elite runners from all over New England, they compete. And there's a point system and prizes and a big banquet at the end of the year. So practically what it means is that you get a couple hundred extra of these hard local elites in the race. The designation tends to change the character of the event to something a bit more competitive, a bit more exciting, and you see a lot of familiar faces. 
I saw Dave Dunham, who owns the record for this race on the old course, of somewhere around 2.22. He was trying to qualify for the marathon in the Olympics at the time. He's my age now, or close to it, but still looked to come in just about three hours. I saw Jim Rhodes, who is the photographer for the Groton Road Race, come in at three and change. I noted a lot of older guys, older than I, mixed in with the young elites. And I saw many fit young athletes of all sexes, shapes, and sizes, looking like they had run hard and run well. And the body types were compact and small on the one end and tall and lanky on the other. And there was still an occasional half-marathoner in the mix, and they stood out. There's a bit of a visual dissonance between a three-hour half-marathoner and a three-hour marathoner. It's really something to be hanging on the fence at the finish of a local marathon. You should try it. You could fill countless novels with the stories that unfold in front of you along that fence. The other notable thing among the elites were the bright orange Nike Vaporfly shoes. A good 30% of people were wearing them. I even saw them on the course back in the mid-pack where I was. Supposedly, they give you a 4% extra performance. And I joked with people who were wearing them. I said, hey, at 250 bucks a pop, you're probably $125 an ounce. Talking to the athletes that were wearing them, they seemed to be a similar design to the old Newtons with a very active four-foot launch pad. So if your form is good, if your form is good enough to run on that crash pad, They convert more energy into forward motion, or so the theory goes. And for we mere mortals, I would caution that unless you have a very clean foot strike and are racing hard, you should probably save your money. These are not your father's trainers. Uh, But there is an interesting New York Times piece that I'll link to here that did a data analysis on Strava data comparing finish times of people who switch shoes And they were able to rank all the shoes as to how they impact performance this way, right? Did the new shoe make you faster? And sure enough, the vapor flies come out on top of that stack. So how did I end up leaning on the fence instead of stumbling through the finishing chute with the rest of these warriors? Well, I DNF'd. Well, I kind of DNF'd. This course is a two-loop course. Think of it as a long, skinny figure eight. It runs along the river and crosses the bridges to complete the loops. The half marathon course does two loops of the intersection of the figure eight, and the full does two loops of the outer section of the figure eight. The two courses start and finish together and touch each other in the middle. What I ended up doing was not heading out on the second loop of the marathon course and instead jumping into the end of the half loop back to the finish. So I either DNF'd or ran a 16 and a half mile half marathon. Either way, it wasn't what I had hoped for. The weather wasn't perfect. It was cold, overcast, quite windy, but the weather wasn't a factor for me. I mean, it might have been if I had headed out on that second loop and had to battle the cold winds into the finish, but it wasn't a factor in my pulling up. It wasn't the weather. I just didn't have the legs. When you go back and try to diagnose these things, it's never easy. There is no silver bullet reason. It's several contributing factors. Coach says... I wasn't recovered from the 100-miler, and my legs certainly felt like they were, quote, overtrained. They had no pop in them, and looking at the miles I did this summer, you can truthfully say that I ran eight-plus marathons during that 
training in that ultra cycle. And that's a lot of marathons in a short period of time. I've been, I won't say suffering from, but feeling a very tight left hamstring. And, and this gives me piriformis pain when I sit too long. This is from the abrupt transition to speed work after the slow slogging of ultra training. I've not really been able to spend the time I need to get the legs unkinked, and this tightness keeps my stride from relaxing. So essentially I'm running a little tight, and it's not optimal. My overall strength and fitness were not where they needed to be for the race I tried to run. (laughs) My training was up and down. I went into the race tired and too heavy, probably 7 to 10 pounds too heavy. But most of all, what disappoints me is that my commitment to the goal was not overwhelming. My head wasn't in it, and it's hard to achieve goals with lackluster commitment. And it's really not fair to the race or to yourself or to your coach to do that. I mean, isn't qualifying for Boston a worthy goal? Isn't it something that you can get passionate about? Of course it is, but As people like to remind me, I've got nothing to prove, and that nothing-to-prove attitude is probably the wrong one to bring into your training and approach if you're serious about your goal. So why requalify at all? Last year, I ran my 20th Boston Marathon. I didn't qualify for all of them, but I qualified for that one and the majority of the rest, and it took a lot of focus. It took a lot of change in my life, especially that first one. I had to go deep into the well to get that first one. And that was before I knew I could do it. That was the icebreaker. Ironically, with the new standards, I'd have to take seven or more minutes off my 1998 race PR to qualify now. I'd have to break three hours. I'm not sure I could have done that. It took everything I was willing to give to get those sub 310 times back then. And you can say the qualifying times get easier as you get older, and they certainly felt easier when I was 45. (laughs) Now, not so much. Now, with the new standards, I'm racing against a 45-year-old me. So you still need to do the work, but your capacity to do the work declines. You need to watch out for injuries more. You need to do all those other things you might have been able to get away with not doing in the old days. I could race hard back-to-back and still recover. I could do back-to-back hard marathons and bounce back for another race, a new race. Heck, the week before I ran my first Bay State in 1997, I did a 26-mile long training run. I ran the course as a training run the week before the race. And I crushed that race. How much faster could I have gone back then if I knew then what, you know, if I knew then what I know now? And that's a dilemma. It's hard to qualify. It's a worthy goal, but I feel like I'm not committed enough to drive the change needed to get it done, probably. And I was right on the edge this year. The new standards are right on the edge of my ability, and I need to bring my A game. And if I'm not bringing my A game, then why am I taking up a slot that someone else is working passionately for? And now for today's featured interview. But I want to talk to you because I've got a lot going on in my friend circle. In the age group I'm in, I'm seeing a lot of cancer. I mean, in the men, it's prostate. In the women, it's breast. It's, and then there's a smattering of brain cancer as well. So it seems like there's a lot of cancer in everybody's life these days. And you have a personal story. So I want to talk to you about that and uh, maybe yeah. get some, some positive input. 
from a uh, sure. from sort of a maybe a runner's uh, point of view as well. So give us the, the cool. 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you're doing. All right. Well, I'm Molly, and I'm from Metro Detroit, and I actually am on disability now due to my diagnosis. I have a grade 3 anaplastic astrocytoma, which is like a junior glioblastoma. So what you know what that John McCain had, he had glioblastoma. Um, what Bo Biden had, he had glioblastoma. I have like a junior level of that. It was in my deep left temporal lobe. Could affect my short-term memory. I always get mixed up and will say the wrong memory. But my short-term memory is a little addled. And my they worry about my speech. Obviously, my speech is not a problem right now. But that was one of their worries. So that's why they had to leave a little bit behind of the tumor because they just don't want to, like, go digging in that area. But, yeah. Yeah. So I could talk for, like, six hours about my day. I love talking about all my brain cancer. I know a lot about it, but I will go on all day. So I'll tell you a story. Do you know um, Iram Leon? One of the Maybe. I, I interviewed him. He has brain cancer, and I interviewed him probably in 2008 or 2009 or 2010. And he was a super fast marathoner, single dad, was pushing his daughter, actually won a marathon. But this whole time, he's doing all this with the diagnosis. And I just saw that he got married. So it's a young guy. That's amazing. He just got married. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm, um, and this I'm always probably curious. Like five, six years later. Yeah, I'm always curious too. Like, what diagnosis did he have? Because there are 500 different kinds of brain tumors you can have, and there's several types of brain cancers. Like, they're not all the same, and really, the grading will make a big difference. Like, I know like there's a couple that are there's meningiomas. There's, and I don't even think that's necessarily cancer. That think generally like a low grade kind of a situation. I could be inaccurate there, but then there's the glioblastomas, astrocytomas, oligodendrogliomas. Those are the those are the big three. Those right there. So yeah, but yeah. look him up. Look him up on Facebook. He's one of my friends. Iram, I R A M. The the point though is that whenever we hear cancer, we always think sort of death sentence, right? But sure. it's not as much anymore, is it? No, eh, I come from a different perspective. I actually like take a different approach on that because like for example mine is terminal illness it's a terminal thing but it doesn't mean you're going to die tomorrow like terminal like i don't think there's understanding of the word terminal terminal means like they can't fix you they don't have a cure it doesn't mean you should be depressed and plan your you all you should actually plan your funeral and your where you want your everything to go like a will you you should do all that no matter what your health is and you should just do that especially if you have a family but right. a diagnosis, I mean, it does depend on how you're feeling, too. Like, I know when I was, I was on chemo for a year, a little over a year, like almost a year and a half. And when you're on chemo, you feel like a dumpster fire. And it's harder to be yeah. super upbeat and positive when you feel that bad. But it's hard not to get depressed. And I know a lot of people do get really depressed. And, and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. And you're like, I'm not dead. I'm right here. I'm still kicking. I can do what I can do. There's some things I can't do now, but that doesn't mean I can't talk to more people. And doesn't mean there's not so many life-changing, epic things you can do. Like, I meet up with people so much more than I ever used to. I always used to put it off. I don't like the way I look right now. Or like, I'm busy. I've got so many things going on. Well, now it's people matter. And you, you make the time to get coffee with a friend. Spend yeah, time with your family. It's, it's, it's a different type of transformational life event. Right, because you think of all the people we talk to who have had a life 
transformation due to going out and becoming runner and losing 100 pounds. I talk to those folks all the time, and they go through this transformation. And I think what you're going through and what people who live with cancer, like my coach Jeff is stage four prostate cancer, right? Oh, you know, wow. It's transformative. Does it help you focus? Does it bring clarity to your life? What becomes important? What becomes less important to you? Yes, it has brought clarity. I'm a happier person now, which is kind of messed up because in a lot of ways, life feels like it just has become a huge disaster if I were to think of it that way because I was diagnosed a grade three, incurable, you're not going to get better kind of cancer. But I feel fine. I mean, there was the chemo, a year and a half of chemo, and there's radiation, and it's scary. And then my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Then her sister was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Then my mom died. And yet I still have this, this perspective that I didn't have before, which was life is short. And make it the best life you can possibly make it. Like, have fun. Enjoy things. Do what you can do. And I used to be so so much more insecure. Sure. I mean, steroids. I was on medical steroids for a, a, over a year. I got pretty fluffy, and it's really hard to take those steroid pounds off. Every now and then, I'm like, you must be doing pretty good to be bummed out about how much weight you gained on the steroids. Because if that's what you're worried about, you're doing pretty good. So that change, and you right. have to take constant control of, like, kind of flipping your perspective. Anytime I, I remember there was a time in the MRI where I was like, I'm really scared. And, and and then all of a sudden, everything narrows down in that moment to what's really important. And that's like like this kind of cheesy thing, but it, it's so real. You, you know what matters most, and that's love and loving people and the people around you. You can be in control of that. And that's really important, I think. So have you found a new community or has it strengthened your existing community? Yeah, actually, Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. I've made a lot of cancer friends. And then on social media, like Twitter, there's the hashtag BTSM, which is brain tumor social media, and they have a once monthly meeting where they there's questions and everyone answers, and this involves doctors, people all over the board, people who have family members who have cancer, loved ones, people with the brain cancer. So that's been really helpful. But also just, I mean, I have a lot of breast cancer friends now. I do my own podcast with my most recent, actually did like a radio video thing, with a friend of mine who has ovarian cancer. And I find these people to be some of the most inspiring people around. Right. That's great. Yeah. So when you got into this, like you said, you weren't doing anything wrong. You were eating right and you were pretty fit. I mean, how does that impact the the arc of the disease and how you deal with it, having sort of been able to work out? Well, I was told when I was first, like after my my craniotomy, they did say I healed very quickly. And it probably had something to do with, like, my fitness and general health. Like, I healed very fast. So that was cool. And uh, that was really positive. The hard part was I kept having seizures, for example. That's what, what my big deficit is. My big problem where my brain uh, tumor was is that I didn't know what a seizure was because I thought it was like the movies where you, like, fall down and start shaking and drooling. Well, that's not at all what my seizures would just be like a faint. So I always thought I was just working mm. out too much or not drinking enough water and doing too many energy drinks, which is definitely a problem. Like I definitely was so tired all the time. I just was constantly doing like any sort of energy, anything, like pills, anything. If it had said it was going to give me energy, I was doing it. So, But unfortunately, that's what caused a seizure too. But that's how I was diagnosed. So it's interesting there. And I already forgot what you just asked me. I no, forgot. I was asking you about being an athlete, whether that helps or hurts. It definitely helps. It definitely helps. 
I'm actually just trying to get back into it now. But the, the doctors say it helps, and if you can do it, definitely keep doing it. Like I know other brain, like sometimes with brain cancer, people have to use a cane. They can't do the same things they were doing before because where the brain is, what it's messing up. So a lot of people, I tried to start a running group for brain cancer patients, and I had like two people join me a couple times because most people either don't run. <laughs> most people don't run, and other people are like, well, I have a cane, so I'm not really going to be a runner. So it became like a walking, and then a bunch of ladies, we just gap. That's what it ends up being yeah. most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. So um, what do you, having gone through this, what's the emotional arc of this for folks who might not be familiar with it? As you get into you're having fainting spells and then you go to the doctor and it's kind of your worst nightmare. What's your emotional arc and how do you get through that successfully to keep on moving forward? Sure. Well, I think it starts, a lot of people are just completely just knocked right off their butt. It's not like you have some warning that usually, I mean, some people I'm sure maybe do, but for the most part, like at first I fell off a coffee shop. They had bar stools in downtown Detroit and I was sitting on my lunch break and I was drinking coffee and I, I thought I just fainted when I woke up on the floor, EMS was there asking me questions. They're like, they're like, you might've had a stroke. You might've had a seizure. We've, we've got to find out. You have to come DMS. I'm like, no, I'm fine. They're like, no, you're not fine. And, uh, when I went there, I thought everything was fine when it wasn't determined it wasn't a stroke. I was like, I'm, I'm fine. And then the emergency room doctor was like, he was so somber and they didn't know what they were looking at. But they're like, you have a very large brain tumor. You need an MRI. You can't, we're not letting you go home. You might need an emergency surgery. That was terrifying, but I was still kind of fuzzy. And so after they looked at it and they let me go home the next day, cause it's like, oh, you know, there's no bleeding. There's no this, there's no that. It looks pretty stable or whatever, whatever they were saying. I could go home. I just needed to have a surgery at some point. So a couple months go by, I go shopping for the best surgeon for my thing. And see, I still thought it was like this benign tumor that all they had to do was remove it and I was going to be fine. But then well, I was really positive and like, whatever, it's going to be fine. Surgery went well. It takes some time for that to come back. And when I found out, I got a phone call from the neuro-oncologist and, and I had never met him before, but he gave me, he's like, well, we found out and it. It isn't benign. You have an anaplastic astrocytoma, which is a grade three. And I was so scared, I screamed. Not with him on the phone, because I still had a sense of, like, dignity around where I wasn't going to scream to my doctor. Also, he's, like, my age, and he's kind of cute, and I don't want to embarrass myself. But, you know, like, I, I hung up, and I was like, I'm going to call you back. And I just sit on the porch, and I screamed. And I, I didn't understand what that meant. So, he, you know, of course, I went right into Henry Ford, and they told me all about it. And I started to feel a little better about it. And then... My general practitioner called me. I, I guess my neuro-oncologist called her, and then I don't know if she, like, Dr. Googled my diagnosis or something, but she's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. You must be, yeah, I don't even remember what she said. She was like, but basically she was telling me I had maybe, like, one to two years or two to five years or something. She told me I was dying, and I was so scared and so up traumatized by it. I was crying and just disturbed, and I had to call my neuro-oncologist, and he had to kind of give me uh, the ditty again. He had to tell me it again, and... He's like, yes, we don't have a cure. It isn't a good diagnosis, but you're not going to die tomorrow, probably, unless you drive into a wall or something. That was hard. That, and then I was kind of depressed for a while after that. But then at some point, you're kind of like, okay, well, I mean, I'm still here right now, and I have some say in this. And the say is maybe not my diagnosis, but how I take my diagnosis. And um, right. I just get bored being miserable. After some time, being scared and being miserable gets kind of useless. So you're just like, okay, well, yeah. um, what can I do? I'm going to do all the things I can still do. My, I still want to watch the same shows I show. I still want to hang out with people. 
still want to hang out with my boyfriend. I still want to eat food. And then chemo again. When you start with chemo, chemo makes you feel like feel like a total dumpster fire. And then you feel fine again. And then you feel bad again. And you feel good. And then you feel bad. And that's just how it goes. But I find like talking so what, to other cancer patients helps you get be more positive and and feel better almost. Like you're just like I'm helping someone. Right. Yes. You're reaching out. You're talking to people and helping them through the yeah, through the totally, journey. Totally. Yeah. Totally and that gives you some purpose as well. So that's good. Yeah. Um, what would you tell people in terms of misperceptions about the, all this stuff? I mean, what are the big misperceptions? To say um, you'll beat this. I don't know. I From every single cancer patient I've talked to, no matter what type they have, you'll beat this. Even though we know it, it totally, we, we don't blame anyone for saying it. It's just like, to me, that shows not understanding cancer well enough sometimes. Yeah. If you don't understand staging and grading too, like, that doesn't mean someone might beat whatever they have. That's not the point. It's just that some people won't, well, and it makes them feel like they're losing if they're not doing well. Or yeah. if you've been given a grim diagnosis, that, and then other people are like, try this, this secret diet that's going to cure you. If, if you don't do it correctly, this happens to me all the time because I'm still always trying. Like, I'm going to drink the celery juice. I'm going to fast. I'm going to do keto. But if I don't do it exactly right, I always feel like a failure. And then other people are like, and, the, you know, big pharma's out to get you. And it's like, no, it's not helping either. It's like, it's scary sometimes. It's scary as a patient. So to so what, tell someone, oh, I know someone what, else had this. Yeah, so, I mean, I have the same thing. I ride a motorcycle, and I'm sorry, because nothing I can say compares to what you're going through. But I ride a motorcycle, and when the first thing people tell you when they know, find out you ride a motorcycle is they tell you they're worst motorcycle story. They tell yeah, you the like story about the guy they knew who hit a guardrail and his head got torn off, right? I'm you're like, like, you know, that's really like not, yeah, that's really <laughs> yeah. not helpful, right? It is. Um, and you know that they're probably just trying to, like, somehow engage a conversation or, like, they mean, even with cancer, people, you know they mean well. You know, they're like, I had a friend who had exactly what you have. And then you get all excited, like, really? And then they died. And you're like, Thanks. Or it turns out, because people don't understand, like, for example, brain cancer, like, I have a friend who had exactly what you had, and they've been around, like, 10 years. They're doing super, and they didn't even have to do chemo. You're like, wow, that's fascinating. Then a year down the road, you find out you didn't even have remotely close, because people don't understand brain cancer. They had a, a meningioma, and it was a low grade, and that's not a necessarily a, I mean, it's not a good diagnosis. You don't want a brain tumor anyway, but it's not a glioblastoma. It's not a cancer. It's not this. People just don't know, and it's not their fault for not knowing, but just you always want to be so what, a little bit aware. Should, what should they say? What? How should people engage? So one thing I've heard about is, and this is, I'm not so touchy about stuff, but I do know a lot of cancer patients who are, instead of saying, well, just let me know if you need anything. That's one of the, actually, like, people know you mean well, but that's not necessarily a good thing to say to someone who is overwhelmed with, like, a new diagnosis. Just, like, do, like, come by and say hi. Call them and say, can I come over? Or I'm going to bring chicken soup over, you know. And if they don't want it, they don't want it. But volunteer to do something. Don't ask them to tell you what they need. Or if you want to bring a – people were always doing there. It was awesome. They were always, like, bringing meals by because for a while there I couldn't even think about cooking or eating. I didn't even know. But B needed food, and it, he was helping me out. So always volunteer to do something as opposed to having the patient ask you for help. Mm. Offer help or offer services or, like, a lot of times they do, like, not food train. Other cancer patients do this for newly 
diagnosed patients that I know with Henry Ford, they often do this with the brain group. They'll like get meals and stuff crapped or like do 25 days of Christmas or I'm not saying it exactly right, but it's something like that where they'll get people together who will volunteer and, and get gifts for the family so that every day they have something to open. Right. I guess the, the gist is don't just say, tell me if you need anything because they're probably going to forget or not know what they need. So sometimes just giving is... Or feel bad. Still, you feel bad about asking for stuff, right? So right. That's definitely a thing. You feel weird. You definitely feel weird. You don't want to be that person. Yep. So what um, organization should people reach out to or investigate around this stuff? For sure. Well, if you want to get in touch with someone who has what you have exactly, for example, um, go to Immerman Angel. And that sets up cancer patients or caregivers up with people their same age, gender, same cancer, same grading, same staging. And that, that just sets you up with someone who's in the kind of the same boat as you. You're not going to be set up with, if you have prostate cancer, you're not going to be set up with someone with breast cancer or, you know, thyroid <laughs> cancer. Like they're going to match you up with someone who, who has as close. If you have a really rare cancer, they're going to do the best they can to get you as close as possible. But I've never known anyone that hasn't been matched exactly with their diagnosis. And then you can be a, uh, like you can be your own. Like I talk to people who find me on Immerman Angels. I sometimes I'm, I was at first the person looking for someone to talk to. Now other people, you know, are trying to find someone and I'm the person who gets picked or not picked. That sounds like it's an election or something. No, that's not it. But um, they, I've matched up with people and it's been great. So I definitely recommend, awesome. recommend Immerman Angels. All right. We'll get the notes, the links and stuff for the notes. So people have that stuff. Sure. So Immerman Angels is great. If you have a, like, I don't know if you're in the Metro Detroit area, there's, and I know in other cities like Los Angeles and I think New York, there's, oh my gosh. See, this is, this is a brain thing. I'll forget a name. Gilda's Club. Gilda, Gilda Radner, Gilda's Club. Those are great because you can find your cancer and other people with it, similar diagnosis. They have group meetings. They have a lot of cancer support things and for families as well. Recommend Gilda's Club. And then I know Henry Ford Hospital has brain group. I know my specific cancer groups and things, but every cancer has their own probably groups everywhere. But it just depends right. on we'll, what you're we'll, looking we'll, for. Yeah, we'll tease out some links. So I'm going to move you to the exit and let you get on with living. Anything you want to uh, leave folks with? No, just that if you get diagnosed, you know someone diagnosed with cancer, life still goes on and, and have a great time and you find people find people out there because it's going to help you. If you can help other people, it will actually make you feel better and it will really inspire people. And I'm mumbling right now, but I I don't know. Find the good in it. Find something positive from it and uh, your life will get better. All right. Well, I'm not going to tell you to let me know what I can do to help, but I'll tell Dirt Dog or Eddie Marathon to bring you over a casserole. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. <laughs> All right, Molly. It was great talking Thank to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was a lot of fun. All right. All right. Yep. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. I had planned to go out with the 330 Pace Group and use their momentum to pull me through the course. With the windy day, this would give me a place to draft. And my pacing skills are notoriously terrible and having a group to hang with would take the guesswork out of it. I found Nat, the pacer, in the corral. He was the same pacer from last year, and I remembered him. 
It was a cold morning and overcast. The wind wasn't bad until we turned into the marathon loop. It was warmer than we expected. I wasn't the only one who was overdressed due to PTSD from our Boston experiences earlier in the year. So I had to ditch a lair and ended up losing my fuzzy hat on the course somewhere. My A goal was a 330. That's an eight-minute mile. My B goal and my current qualifying standard was a 335, and that's like an 812 mile. In my training, I had been able to hold those 810-ish paces well, but blew up when I tried to hold 750 and below. And I knew my fitness was right on that razor's edge around an 8-minute mile. And that's why I was thankful for the pace group. Theoretically, they should be running right on 8-minute miles. And I figured if I could relax into that 3.30 group, even if I had to fight it at the end, I would have five minutes to spare. And eh, that was the theory. The problem, and I'm not blaming anyone, I should have been in better shape, is that we went out at a 3.28 marathon pace. And that was on the wrong side of the razor's edge of my fitness. Nat dropped a 38 right out of the gate. It didn't feel awful, but it was strangely reminiscent of the two bad tempo runs I had at the end of my training cycle where I went out at a similar pace and had my legs blow up on me about eight or nine miles in. The pace wasn't hard to maintain, but I was working too hard. The first half of a marathon, even one you're racing for a goal, should be relatively easy. If you have trained well and are fit and recovered, the real work doesn't start until the high miles. My heart rate was very high, zone 5, zone 6, which isn't unexpected with the cold start. I had run a mile or so easy before getting into the corral to warm up a bit, but at my age, it takes a while for the circulatory system to work out the kinks, especially on a cold day. And I wasn't breathing hard, I was conversational, so I tend to ignore the heart rate and focus more on perceived effort in a race. Heart rate is a good piece of data, but it's not the whole picture. And Nat slowed it down a bit as we worked through the first 10K. And we even registered one 805 split. So my splits from my watch through the first 10 miles were 738, 749, 805, 752, 8 even, 753, 748, 756, 754, and 754. Brian was running in the back of the pace group, and I never saw him. He said he could feel the pack slow down after every mile split as the pacer realized, you know, they're still going too fast. So I did my best to relax and hold good form and stay in the pack. It was hard because we were all moving around to stay out of the wind and avoid the bad road sections. And we were stepping on each other, and that makes it hard to find a rhythm. There were probably 30 of us in this pace group. The 330 pace group is also where the serious young women run. And I was with a cadre of ex-college runners looking to qualify. And they were excellent company. They told stories of having to come to grips with being slower after college and how they had to relearn how to enjoy running without being so critical of themselves. And they all had running boyfriends and fiancés. You know how women are. They talk a lot. So it was, it was, they were great company. Strong women, a lot of them. And as we crossed the river around mile seven, I was starting to struggle. (laughs) 
not struggle, but you know, the it was the the sun was starting to set, and Nate laid down a few more fast miles, and I realized I needed to get out of the front of that pack. So as we passed through nine and ten, I let myself drift back through the pack of about, like I said, thirty runners, to see if I couldn't find a more comfortable pace. My heart rate was still in the fives, and my legs were feeling heavy. And as I eased up and fell out of the pack, my legs felt worse. As if up to this point they had been doing something, but now they realized the effort of it. So I slowed down to about an 8.20 pace and thought about that second lap. (laughs) And the pace group moved ahead. I had just executed an excellent 10-mile tempo run at 10-plus seconds a mile faster than my goal pace. My legs knew it. I would feel it the next day. But it was too much, too fast, and I could tell I had dug a hole my legs weren't going to recover from. I didn't have the fitness for the race I tried to run. And I've raced enough marathons to read the tea leaves at the 10-mile mark. I could see where this one was going. I mean, it could happen, but chances are I wasn't going to recover enough to find a pace that would get me in under my goal time. A more likely scenario was that I would fight for 810s and 820s for a few more miles, then struggle with 840s and 9s for a few more miles, and then fall into a desultory run-walk in the gusting winds of the final 10K for for an ugly, hypothermic 350-something finish, another one of those 20-minute positive split races that I am so good at. And that's when I started thinking about, how do I get off this course without going through that? I've toughed out enough races in my life. I came here to qualify. That wasn't happening. Time to go home. You can hear the rain on the roof. I'm up in my attic because I was trying to get someplace quiet. But even up here, it's not quiet. And it's interesting to me that this makes people mad. They scream, how could you not finish? Who cares about the time? It's about making the distance. And I agree, in a 100-mile race or some other unreasonably difficult adventure, it is about the finish. But for me, sometimes, it's just about the time. This will make my third DNF, my second at Bay State, ironically, and each time I left the course because I knew I wasn't going to make my time. So I dropped back to a slow jog, and I made my way back towards the bridge where the second loop started. And Brian's sister Kelly was there, so I stopped to talk to her. I told her I was done. And I realized that the back of the pack of the half marathon was crossing the bridge going in the other direction. So Kelly had to get back to the finish, and I did too. So we jumped in the back with the two-hour-plus two half marathoners and ran in towards the finish. And I had a funny moment near the finish where they were calling out the runners' names as they crossed a mat. And I think it was Dave Kamir doing the announcing. He runs the timing company, old friend of mine. And he read read off my name. You know, he was reading off the names of the runners as they they come along. So he read off my name. And then he did a comic double take and, and said, Wait, that's the Chris Russell! As he looked up and saw me, probably wondering... What 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 was I doing at the back of the pack of the half marathon? So then I got changed up and I went over to wait for Brian. I was sore the next day, like I had raced a 10K. I got Coach on the phone and talked him through it. His opinion was that I never fully recovered from the 100. 
as I am wont to do, I raise the possibility of doubling down and racing again this fall. I've done it before, more than once. Pulled a rabbit out of a hat from a mediocre training cycle. And coach said, no, don't do that. He said, take a rest, build some strength, focus on Boston in the spring. So that's what I'm going to do. It feels shitty to execute poorly and walk away from a race, but I'm grateful for the gifts I've been given, and I need to get my head right if I'm going to honor those gifts in the appropriate way. And the real question here is, what do dead squirrels have to do with anything? Well, let me tell you. The course was literally covered with roadkill. I must have seen eight to ten squished squirrels underfoot. It has something to do with the squirrel cycle. There was an article in the Globe about it last month. We've been overrun with squirrels here in the Bay State. It's the squirrel apocalypse. Now, my race was shitty. I had a bad day. But theirs, theirs was worse. I'll get to race again. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Thank you, my friends, for joining me for episode 4-397 of the Run Run Live podcast. Unless you gave up halfway through, then you're not here anymore. So what am I going to do now? I'm going to rest a bit, take some time off, gain some weight. Actually, I just got on a uh, back on a diet because I was feeling so horrible about the 10 pounds I gained after the race. <laughs> Get my head right. That's important. I'm working hard on that. You'll probably hear hear some about that the next few weeks. Get my passions back. You know, running or anything else, when you do it right, is a clear, crisp beacon of passion. And when you do it wrong, you get your ass kicked. I've got some fun races in the fall. There's the traditional air Thanksgiving 5K in the next town over. I'll do that with my daughter. And I'll probably hang back and run with my friend Tom, who just found out he has stage 4 prostate cancer, and then the Mill Cities Relay with my club. And, of course, the last Sunday in December, the 30th, we will gather for the Groton Marathon, which is an entirely made-up race of any distance and any pace you want to run with me and my friends in Groton, Massachusetts. I suppose that should be my friends and I in Groton, Massachusetts. You can visit the website at grottonmarathon.com. Come up and play with us. Last weekend, when I was in the pace pack, people kept asking me, how many marathons have you run? And I did not know how to answer. Do I count the ultras? Do I count those training runs that were longer than 26.2? I mean, if that's the case, then, like I said, I think I ran eight marathons over the summer. I'm going to count Groton, even though it's a made-up race. (laughs) Come up and join me. We'll jog a casual four-hour marathon and tell tall tales. I told the coach that we have a full gym at the place I work now, and I told him he should teach me how to use the heavy bag because it always looks cool on TV and in movies when people are kicking and punching the heavy bag. I never, never did that. Never did any boxing or anything like that. So something new. And maybe next summer I'll get back on the mountain bike. I kind of miss it. Maybe we'll find an epic race that rewards endurance and doesn't penalize lack of ability. Before that, I've got a qualified ticket to the 2019 Boston Marathon. And you know, I haven't run a qualifying race at Boston since 2010. So that might be a worthy goal. And I have another trick for you. 
when you are in uncomfortable situations where you feel you have imposter syndrome, all you introverts out there, this one is the superhero avatar trick, and it's appropriate for Halloween, I guess, although we're a little past Halloween at this point. Maybe should I should have used it last Sunday in my race. The trick is to think of someone real or imagined who is fantastic in these sort of situations. They are the superhero of whatever this situation is that you're afraid of. And picture them in that situation, engaging the crowd, wowing the opposition, swaying everyone with their charisma and drive. They are the epitome of the pro. You wish you were. So you get that person visualized, you get them pictured in your head, you get them? All right, now give them a name, a cool name, a superhero name like Crusher or T-Rex. Got it? All right. Now, next time you go into that situation and it scares you, think about how Crusher or T-Rex would handle it. Visualize what they would do. Put their avatar in front of you like a shield or a projection. Even better, step into that projection and put it on like a costume. Live that situation through your superhero's eyes and actions. What would Crusher do in this situation? What would T-Rex do? Try that. It might not help, but it's fun. And what the heck do you have to lose? Life is short. Live it like you mean it. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live episode 4. Oh jeez, I'm skipping words. Look at that, I'm skipping words. Right out of the gate, I'm skipping words. 